Okay, the Great War. Most people know it as World War I. Um, older Europeans know it as the Great War. Very interesting term that they attach to World War I, the Great War. Obviously, the word great being a very ambiguous term. Uh, for many people, it was the Great War. It was the greatest experience of their lives, especially for young men who went off to war. For other people, it was the Great War because it brought such great harm and destruction to their lives. It literally destroyed the fabric of European life. Um, and Europe actually was able to recover from it to a certain degree, although it led to what historians call the Age of Anxiety, which is the, the period following World War I. Um, it was supposed to be the war to end all wars and that there would never be a war like it again. And yet, just 29 years later, we would have World War II, um, which would be even more destructive in terms of the firepower that was directed at human beings. So what I'm going to walk you through today is a talk about the causes of the war, the technologies that came out of the war, and the impact of the war. I'm actually going to start you off with um, the impact of the war so that we can return to it. Okay, so I want you to just study this for a second. Don't record anything that's on screen here because you can find these statistics anytime you want on the net. Okay, looking at war wounded, I want you to actually start to hear the numbers that we're talking about here. Before we even get into which side was against which side, just looking at the numbers. So the central powers, which included Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Turkish Ottoman Empire. 4.2 million Germans who went to war came back wounded in some way, shape, or form. Most of the time, very wounded, horribly wounded. 3.6 million came back from Austria to Austria-Hungary wounded. 1.5 million of the Ottoman Empire soldiers came back wounded. For France, 3.6 million wounded. Italy, almost a million wounded. Russia, almost five million wounded men. The British Empire, 2.1 million. And here's the United States, which actually came into the war a couple years after it started, really quite small at only 204,000 wounded. These numbers are astonishing. When you think about the destructiveness of previous wars and how uber-constructive destructive this war became. But that's just the wounded. Let's look at the dead. For Germany, 1.9 million dead. Austria-Hungary, 1.2 million dead. The Ottoman Empire, nearly a million dead. For France, 1.3 million dead. For the British, almost a million dead. Italy, 680,000 dead. For Russia, 1.7 million dead. When you think about the idea that this war basically lasted from 1914 to 1919, and you think about the number of young men and civilians and other people who died in this war, it would be as if you were to take a quarter of the population in America and suddenly make it vanish just like that. 
it tore up European families. Nobody was immune from the death and destruction of this war. Everybody knew somebody who had died. Sometimes uh, multi-sons went off to war and every single one of them died in the process. And uh, so the death and destruction is really something that should cause us to pause and think about the causes of the war and think about what happened during the war and what the outcome of this war was and to explore a little bit why scholars might call the age that followed it the age of anxiety. Kind of gives you a preview as to one of the terms that comes out of this war which is shell shock. What we know today is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. That's shell shock is the term back then. Okay. All right. So these are the nations that were involved in the war, the major nations. In the end, 31 countries would actually be involved in this world war. But here's how it looked. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain this using the nation's flags. Okay. So here's the imperial flag of uh, Austria-Hungary. And here's the German national flag. Germany is now a unified state. It becomes a unified state quite late in the process, 1872, roughly around there. And so these represent the central powers and their position centrally in Europe, as I'll explain in a moment. So they're allied together. They're Germanic peoples, the Austrians and the Germans, and they're allied together. And on either side, you're going, they're going to have uh, nations that they're going to be at war with. Okay? So on the Eastern Front, we have the Imperial Russian flag. This is the flag of the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II. You know the whole Disney uh, uh, story of Nicholas and Alexandria and the young boy who was a hemophiliac um, and the princess and all of that. This is the Imperial flag of Russia on the uh, Allied side. And also on the Allied side, this is the flag of France and here's the flag of Britain. Okay? A couple years into the war, actually three years into the war, the war starts in 1914 and in 1917 the United States enters the war, um, we would have basically the setup for how this war would unfold. So here's the flag of Italy, and Italy in the beginning would be allied with Germany and Austria-Hungary, but later would actually change sides and would end up on the side of the Allies after suffering severe losses and uh, sort of an internal revolution. And this would happen again in World War II. Italy would change sides after the death of Mussolini and would end up coming in on the side of the uh, Allied powers there. And then, as I said, the United States comes in late. Okay? So what you see developing here is the so-called Western Front and the so-called Eastern Front. And it was here that the war was fought, not internally in Germany and Austria-Hungary not internally in Russia, and not internally in Britain or even in France. It was fought on the borders, on the fronts between these countries. And basically it really was a rather narrow strip of land running north to south on the western front and on the eastern front where everything took place. And in the end, all that death and destruction, all those wounded, the national borders really didn't change at all. In other words, nothing really was affected as a result of the outcome of this war, uh, just a lot of dead and a lot of wounded. And I'll have a lot more to say about these fronts and what happened on these fronts as we go. Okay. But by the way, the Eastern Front and the Eastern Front and the Western Front would be part of the thematic uh, 
uh, lexicon of this particular war. For example, one of the film clips that I'm going to show is called All Quiet on the Western Front. People would know it as the Western Front or the Eastern Front, and soldiers would uh, identify themselves as those who fought on either of those fronts. Okay? Now, in, on March 3rd, 1918, fully three years into the war, Russia would experience its great revolution and it would overthrow its absolute monarch and Nicholas II and the Bolsheviks Lenin and Trotsky and later Stalin would take power and there would be a communist revolution in Russia and an internal civil war between the old forces of the Tsar and the new communist forces the Bolshevik forces that were attempting to take power and on March 3rd after the Bolsheviks had taken power 1918 they would sign a separate peace treaty with Germany, Austria, Hungary and would leave the war. Now they paid a heavy price for that peace treaty, especially in terms of loss of land. Most of the Ukraine was given to Germany, although that came back after the war. But here, this country, Russia, that was allied with Britain and with France and with America, dropped out of the war. And you can only imagine what would have happened then, right? All of those Russian soldiers fighting on the Eastern Front now disappear and all of the soldiers for Germany and Austria-Hungary can now be repositioned to the Western Front and this almost tipped the war in the favor of Germany and Austria-Hungary and it is my argument and my personal argument that this is when the Cold War begins because the Allied powers were so angry that Russia dropped out of the war and that it went communist that it began this Cold War versus the West versus the communist Soviets over there I think that March 3rd, 1918 is really when the Cold War begins and not after World War II when the bomb is dropped and all of that. The seeds of distrust are sowed here, okay? All right, so pre-war Europe, before the war starts, it's captured in this political cartoon here by Haldol, Haddall. And um, I don't really have time to explain this fully except to say that somehow up to the year 1913, or, or as we travel up to 1914 when the, when the war begins, what we have here is a snarling mess of nations in Europe who have developed all kinds of antagonisms against each other and have formed alliances to uh, set up for the possibility that if war begins, those alliances will kick in and people will be uh, protected. And you can imagine, I mean, just go back to Marie Antoinette and that she was an Austrian princess who was married to a French Bourbon king, and this was a marriage of political convenience, that the interconnectivity of all of these aristocrats with each other, king marrying daughter off to some other nation's prince, etc., etc., the intermeshing of this was extremely complicated, which makes the fact that we ended up in a world war here even more interesting because families were literally fighting against family members as this whole process kind of played its way out. Okay, so Russia, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and France, Spain, and England. And what we've got here is just an angry mess spoiling for a fight. Okay, all right, so we have some, whoa, let's go back a sec. Back, back, okay. Okay, so long-term causes. I'm gonna go through and explain these briefly with individual slides. So we have these snarling alliances, which I'll explain. We have the militarization 
of these nations as they go through their own industrial revolutions. We have uh, the industrialization of Europe in general, and we have the concept of nationalism, uh, which I will cover using a clip from All Quiet on the Western Front. Okay, so first of all, let's talk for a second before we get into the unification of Germany, let's talk about these alliances. So try to imagine that over here on my right is Russia, and over here on my left is um, Britain and France, and you two in the middle are Austria-Hungary, okay, and Germany together. Well, France and Germany had gotten into a war in 1872, and France had been soundly beaten. And remember I talked about nationalism, sometimes the stories of defeat really get people fired up. Well, this victory over France unified Germany, very, very solid. They became a, a complete national entity. And as Germany was militarizing and going through its own industrial revolution, Russia here and France over here start to become very nervous about what muscle flexing Germany is going through. And so they form an alliance with each other. And basically they shake hands with each other and say that if Germany ever attacks either one of them, then the other will come in and support. Germany, knowing that these alliances are being formed, forms its own alliance over here with Austria. And these are Germanic people, so it's a natural alliance. So basically, that system sets up the possibility that if Russia or France ever attacks Germany or Austria, that alliance will kick in. And here's Britain over here. And Britain is essentially lining itself up with the French because they're right below. And because it's getting very nervous about Germany being such a 900-pound industrial militarized gorilla. So ironically, these alliances were set up in order to preserve the peace. But in fact, when something happens, a trigger happens, it's the peace that gets destroyed. Because the minute somebody de um, declares war on somebody else, all of the alliances kick in, and before you know it, you've got a world war. So these entangling alliances, which are supposed to create peace, in fact, are the very fabric that creates the war itself. Now, on top of that, we get the unification of Germany, and we get the military buildup of Germany as it goes through its own industrial revolution. So this threatens the rest of Europe, and Germany's army really becomes the standard for all of Europe. Everybody's looking with worried eyes, but with jealous eyes at Germany and watching what they're doing. And Germany's developing this incredible military machine. And yet, so far, there's really no threat from Germany. There's just the alliances that have been made and the peace is being kept, but Germany is starting to become a full-fledged nation. Okay, so this is one of the factors is the unification of Germany. Okay, now another factor that's in play is imperialism. Now we, we really should have spent an entire unit talking about imperialism, but here we only get one slide, okay? So Africa, as you know from the age of exploration, has become a place where Europeans have gone to get natural resources like gems, gold, uh, uh, lumber, mm, precious minerals, iron, all sorts of things were coming from Africa. And so over the course of the early 19, the late 1800s and the early 1900s, there's a real rush by European countries to go into Africa, to colonize Africa, and to begin to extract Africa's resources to Europe to process and to turn out 
finished products that would be sold to the rest of the world. So this is the carve-up of Africa. And look at all of these countries that are now dominating in Africa, have dominated African countries, and have literally changed the geopolitical landscape of Africa. And yet here they all are, albeit Africa is a large continent, but they're all crammed together into this one bathtub, and they're a snarling mess with each other, and they're all competing for resources. And so there's a tremendous amount of tension that's created out of this colonization of Africa. On the other hand, once the war begins, if you're going to draw troops together and to make your army particularly powerful, where do you go to get those troops? To your colonies. Ergo, why so many people from India, men from India, eventually fought for the British? Because India was the jewel of the crown. It was the dominant protectorate of the British Empire, and you recall it would then take Gandhi to eventually uh, gain independence for India much, much later in the 1940s. Okay, so imperialism played a role in this. Okay, all right. Industrialization is what we've been covering for these last two weeks, and I don't need to spend too much time on this other than to say that eventually the Industrial Revolution would focus its tremendous productive power on the production of military weapons. All of that inventive power that went towards making cloth or uh, electrical uh, uh, light bulbs and all kinds of things that might have improved the quality of life, Josiah Wedgwood uh, pottery and things like that, was also applied in the direction of weaponry. And look at this gun and think about how fast we've gone from the young guy holding the bow and arrow in the Middle Ages to just a few hundred uh, years later, this awesome weapon that could kill people in a really destructive rate. And this is what people are looking at when they see Germany beginning to militarize itself. The Industrial Revolution applied to weaponry. Okay, now we also have the concept of nationalism, which has now become an extremely acute concept in Europe. All of the nations are fully formed. France, Spain, England, Italy is now completely a unified country. And then lastly, Germany. Austria-Hungary is still a combination of an empire that includes Austria and Hungary. But we have fully formed countries and their full-throated sense of nationalism is now at a fever pitch. And this is best displayed in a film clip, uh, the first few minutes of a film called All Quiet on the Western Front. And in this film clip, which you're about to see, what happens is that a German teacher an old white guy, in the midst of all of these soldiers going off to war and with his many male students in front of him, engages in a little bit of incredible rhetoric to convince them that they need to go off to fight for God and country. Okay, watch. Watch how he builds his argument to convince these young kids to go to war.
not to be despised. I believe it will be a quick war, but there will be few losses. But if losses there must be, then let us remember the Latin phrase which must have come to the lips of many a Roman when he stood in battles in a foreign land. Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Sweet and fitting it is to die for the fatherland. Some of you may have ambitions. I know of one young man who has great promise as a writer. And he has written the first act of a tragedy, which would be a credit to one of the masters. And he is dreaming, I suppose, of following in the footsteps of Goethe and Schiller. And I hope he will. But now, our country calls. The fatherland needs leaders. Personal ambition must be thrown aside in the one great sacrifice for our country. Here is a glorious beginning for your lives. The field of honor calls you. Why are we here? You, Croft, what has kept you back? You, mother, you know how much you are needed? Ah, I see you look at your leader. And I, too, look to you, Paul Baumer. And I wonder what you are going to do. I'll go. I want to go. Come on me. Me, too. I'm ready. I'm not going to stay home. So, what a masterful argument. He starts by telling the kids that another classroom has already done it already. And then he says, I don't uh, suppose to tell you that you should uh, think patriotically, but I wonder if it's going through your mind. And then he shames them into thinking that perhaps if they don't want to go, that's because they're weak like their mothers. And then in the end, he starts calling on them individually and says, what is it that's going through your mind? Are you imagining being a hero? Are you going to be a person who writes about the war? And in the end, he convinces them that it's right and proper to go off to war, but he slips one little insidious thing into there, which is, it'll be a short war. How many times have men gone off to war having been told it'll be over really quick. People were told, young men were told this during our own Civil War, which happened 60 years before this, and that lasted for four years and nearly ripped the country apart. And there wasn't any family in America that didn't have a son die uh, or wounded in that war. So there's all kinds of rhetorical tricks that get used. But in essence, what we're talking about is uber-nationalism and the use of that nationalism, which I explained to you in that lecture, to fire people up, to act patriotically, and to go off to war. Okay, well, so those are the causes, the underlying causes of the war, but we need a trigger to kick this thing off. And the trigger comes when the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, um, crazy incident, travels to Serbia, which has been under the thumb of Austria for a long time, on their national day of Serbian cultural independence, travels there to make some remarks. And while he's there in Sarajevo in Serbia, he's assassinated. 
And now, of course, Austria's reaction to that is to tell the Serbians to apologize. And the Serbians' reaction to this is to essentially give them the old heave-ho. And Austria reiterates its desire that they need to apologize or else. And Serbia, of course, gives them the old heave-ho. At which point, Austria declares war on Serbia. And then what happens? The alliance between Austria and Germany kicks in. So Germany is now at war with Serbia. Well, the Serbians are Slavic people. And that means that Russia, the Slavic peoples, is going to declare war on Austria and on Germany. And if Russia declares war on Austria and Germany, it's an alliance with France and with Britain. That means that France and Britain now have to declare war on Austria and Germany. And before you can blink, 31 nations are involved in a great world war that's going to be fought on the battlefields on the Eastern Front and on the Western Front. It happens in a heartbeat in Europe. And all that snarling uh, madness and tension and entangling alliances suddenly kick into effect and we have ourselves a world war. So it doesn't immediately begin uh, as, a, as, you know, fighting doesn't immediately begin. The nations have to mobilize. Yes, they've industrialized, but they have to mobilize. So this is the mobilization process. That means, just as you saw in the film clip, men are gathered into uh, training camps in all of the different nations. They're trained, they're prepared, they're put together with all the industrial uh, uh, weaponry that has been developed uh, over decades and then sent off to the Eastern Front and the Western Front, and so the war begins. Once you get into the mobilization stage, it's a little hard to pull back from the brink and actually not have the war. Everybody's fired up. God and country are, are now, have now been invoked, and the kids are volunteering like crazy because A, they think it's going to be a short war, and B, mm, well, what a drudge life they're living, working in the factories and all of that. Why not go off to the adventure of war I'll be back. No worries, I'll be back. And I'll be back intact. Okay, so now I'm going to walk you through some of the changes in warfare that came about as a result of World War I. The Civil War in America fought in, uh, from 1861 uh, uh, to 1865 was a very destructive war, but it was fought in the old traditional European sense, which is that you had a distinct battlefield and on that battlefield, the two armies would line up. And maybe you might have some civilian observers over here. But mostly, the two armies sort of lined up against each other. And they aimed their weapons, and they shot at each other volley after volley until somebody decided that they'd had enough. And then there would be a retreat of some sort, and then they would go at it again. My point being that there was not so much destruction of the area around the battlefield. It was fought on the battlefield, battlefield after battlefield. But this war introduces us to the concept of total war, as in war that affects everybody. It means that the entire society is geared towards war, which means that uh, labor production is shifted in the direction away from textiles, for example, and towards uh, uh, the manufacturing of shells that can be uh, hurled into the air by uh, long-range guns. It involves the actual destruction of civilian property and civilian life. And uh, eventually, the outcomes of the war are total outcomes, leading to this concept of total war. And so we're going to walk through some of the changes uh, that came about as a result of this changing nature of war and the concept of total war. So first of all, we're going to see a really remarkable leap forward in terms of wartime communications. They actually start out using pigeons here. And these pigeons 
are kept in these gas protection boxes because of the new wartime technology called gas or chemical warfare. Uh, but pigeons, um, I mean, this is how it's, World War I is such a contrast in a sense. I mean, some very crude, very uh, primitive kinds of ways of communication coupled with some of the most sophisticated ways of killing people that you could possibly imagine. Uh, paradoxical in that sense, okay? All right. Now, we would get trench warfare, and this is really the sort of central story of World War I, is the concept of trench warfare. So, again, back to that notion of the two fronts, the Western Front and the Eastern Front, narrow strips of land which were bracketed or bordered by trenches. And on the one side would be the Germans and the Austrians, and on the other side would be either the French and the British, or on the Eastern Front, the Russians. And the general approach to trench warfare is that the night before there would be an attack, and there you've got a, a line of uh, French soldiers, and then way over here about a mile away, a line of German soldiers, and they're all in their trenches. The night before, using 70 millimeter uh, guns that could throw a shell uh, three miles in the air and drop it within a circle 15 feet in diameter, incredibly accurate, and a 70 millimeter shell being this big, which could leave a hole in the ground uh, as deep as this classroom. All night long, those guns would pulverize the other side before an attack. Ergo, shell shock, that you sat there in the rain in your trench with the rats and the horrible, everything that was going on, not having been out of the trench for days and no bathing or anything like that, and all night long shells are raining down on you until you've been practically numbed into submission on the other side. And then the shelling would stop and the attacking army would leap out of this trench and would rush across this area called no man's land filled with big divots because the bombs had been falling all night long and filled with a new technology called barbed wire all rolled up in there and with these rifles would charge across shooting at the enemy that was still in their trenches over there. And on the way, they would face one of the most destructive weapons ever developed, which is the machine gun. Because who wants to shoot one bullet at a time when you can shoot 100 bullets a second? There's the machine gun right here. So you're running along close to your compatriots into a hail of bullets. And eventually, the same thing would happen as in the old wars, which is there'd be a lot of death and, and destruction, and the army would retreat, and then the other side would do the same thing, and then there would be attack from the other side, and back and forth and back and forth. Four years, really no pain, I mean, no, no gain in terms of, uh, of uh, territory, anything like that, just all those millions of dead. So trench warfare really becomes the key to this whole thing. And I have a clip to show you from a film called Paths of Glory that gives you a sense for what trench warfare was like, starring Kirk Douglas.
incredible destruction, day after day, month after month, for four years. And in between the attacks, life in the trenches, mostly in the rain, because happened to be uh, some pretty bad years of weather. Uh, and uh, so this life leads to a whole kind of a culture of living in the trenches that's been much written about. Um, you'll probably be exposed to it as you go on up through literature and um, perhaps at some point you actually will read All Quiet on the Western Front or some of the other works that come out of this. Okay, now one of the things that comes out of this, obviously, from the clip that you've just watched is the concept of shell shock, which we know today as PTSD. Um, the sustained bombardment of human beings and living under extreme fear that at any moment you might be blown to bits leads to this diagnosable condition called shell shock. And uh, physicians and psychologists in Europe would have a heck of a time dealing with it because it was on a scale that had really been unimagined uh, prior to this. But also what comes out of this is that there are new roles for women. This is really in the Civil War, the American Civil War and the uh, First World War is the moment when r women uh, really begin to assert themselves as medical professionals, as healthcare professionals on the battlefield. Florence Nightingale, and I think actually uh, yesterday may have been Florence Nightingale Day or something like that. I heard something to it, but Florence Nightingale is the patron saint of nurses. Uh, when you get pinned as a nurse, there's a reference to her. Um, and so um, there are certain kinds of progress that comes out of war. One of that uh, concepts is the progress of women. Okay, so we also get this concept of scorched earth that part of the process of winning the war is not just defeating the soldiers on the battlefield, but actually uh, destroying the environment that they live in and the area around the battlefield itself. So it wasn't just about killing Austrian soldiers or German soldiers or, or Russian soldiers. It was about destroying their cities, destroying their villages, trying to um, destroy the will to continue fighting. And it leads to this concept of uh, scorched earth and scorched uh, partly in reference to one of the new technologies that comes out, which is the flamethrower. This is a gun that actually shoots gasoline, which is lit by a wick at the end of it. Tremendously destructive to um, the natural environment and to human beings. Okay, so just uh, some of the weapons. We would see the use of chemical weapons. And if you go back to that clip from uh, Paths of Glory, um, you might have dived into one of those big divots those big holes to try to escape the bullet fire that was going over the top of you, especially machine gun fire. But what you probably would have run into are heavy gases that were being used. They exploded out of canisters that were hurled in the air. They would drop down into these holes and would explode. And these heavy gases like mustard gas, which, are in, which is invisible, would be sitting down. So you dove down into the hole to avoid the bullets, breathe the mustard gas, it dissolved your lungs, you threw up your lungs, and you died extremely painful death. And so the, the Industrial Revolution leads to the development of new chemistry, and new chemistry leads to the development of new kinds of weapons, chemical weapons that could kill people. And you can see them wearing gas masks there. Now, we also get uh, the development of submarines. Remember Leonardo da Vinci is the one who imagined the submarine? Well, the Germans are the first to use the submarine, and it's partly the reason why America gets into the war, because they were sh um, submarining our ships. They were 
torpedoing our ships. Um, and Germany would use this to full effect in World War I and then even more in World War II. And here's a brief clip from a fantabulous film called Das Boot, in German, The Boat. Um, and this is in German with subtitles and it kind of gives you just a quick feel for what would happen if a uh, submarine was cruising along the surface and just watching out for enemies and suddenly there's an enemy attack and what life would be like inside of one of these submarines. I recommend it. It's an incredible film. It would lead to a whole genre of other submarine films, uh, maybe one that you know with uh, Sean Connery called The Hunt for Red October. Um, so there you go. Okay, and as I said earlier, perhaps the most destructive weapon of all was the machine gun uh, developed by a guy named Maxim. And basically the concept was is that you needed a barrel that would rotate and you would feed in a line of bullets that were all linked together. And rather than shooting off one bullet, it would shoot off 100 bullets a second or something faster. And then of course it would only take a uh, a short hop, skip, and a jump to take that weapon and to mount it on top of an airplane. Airplanes are not used so much in World War I, but to mount it on top of an airplane to be able to shoot other airplanes. But then the great leap forward as you were flying along with your propeller going like that, this is astonishing, to figure out how to shoot a machine gun so that a bullet goes through every rotation of a propeller every second. And that was actually figured out, where you could shoot straight ahead as a pilot bullets going through the propellers, not hitting the propellers. That one's still a mystery to me. I don't know how you could ever figure out how to do that. And you may have heard the term the whole nine yards. Have you heard that term before? It has nothing to do with football or rugby or soccer or anything like that. The machine gun bullet 
clip was nine yards long and feeding the whole nine yards through the machine gun while the machine gunist was shooting, that's where the term the whole nine yards comes from, when you had fed all those bullets through. So when you say somebody has gone the whole nine yards, you're actually referring to that moment when the bullet clip was run through. Okay, um, we would also have development of long range weapons that could throw shells uh, miles and miles with great accuracy. And even to this day in France, to this day in 2009, there is a department in the French Ministry of, in, of the Interior that is solely devoted to still digging up shells that didn't explode but are underground in France from World War I. There isn't a week in France that goes by without somebody being injured or dying, gardening away, digging in their little garden grandma and hitting a shell and having it explode. That's how much of this weaponry was rained on top of human beings. It's quite remarkable. You can actually research that and see there's a lot of scholarship that's been done about um, the cleanup of those weapons. And again, the use of chemical weapons here, you see him wearing a gas mask here. This is a particularly interesting uh, picture because he's a dispatch rider. He's wearing a gas mask to protect himself from chemicals, but he's carrying this spear, almost like he's a, like Don Quixote, like a, a knight of the Middle Ages or something. You just, I don't know what he's gonna do with that. It's like he's carrying a javelin of some sort that he could ride somebody down. Okay, we would also get flamethrowers, as you can see right here. Again, a gun that shoots gasoline. Um, later in the Vietnam War, that would be perfected into a pellet uh, that had something called napalm inside of it, and it could be dropped out of an airplane or a jet and would scoot along the ground, exploding napalm gasoline and burning everything in sight. So you can see how the forces of inventiveness and the Industrial Revolution really come to bear in uh, developing the, the destructiveness of this war. Here's the first tanks. Look at how small they are, but very destructive because it they were hard to destroy um, and they could go basically anywhere. Although you wouldn't want to be caught inside of one if you got hit directly. And then kind of shifting away from weapons to some of the other outcomes of the war. This is really the first war that's filmed. The Civil War was photographed and you can see those photographs. They're quite remarkable. It's really the first uh, war that, uh, where there's extensive documentation through photography. But the First World War is the first war that's filmed, not television. That wouldn't come until really the Vietnam War. But these newsreels that were shot out on the battlefield and in the, in the midst of all the chaos and the destruction would then be shipped back and you would often see them before you went to see a feature film of some sort. So if you were going to see a Charlie Chaplin film, modern times, you might actually see a newsreel which showed you what was going on with the war. And this had a tremendous impact on the public's perception of the war, since they now were very aware of what was going on and how destructive it was. And it helped lead eventually to a lot of conflicting feelings about the war, not the least of which was the use of propaganda. So here's some anti-German propaganda. We're going to beat back the Hun. There's the German. Look at him. He's looking awfully Terminator-like here. Um, this is Arnold. And of course, he's evil, and he's got that evil look in his eye. And what is it that you're supposed to do? You're supposed to buy a liberty bond, which means that the government gives you a piece of paper, and you pay the government $100, and that $100 goes towards the war effort, and later the government will pay you back. This is how we fund the war. Destroy the mad brute. Look here how they play off of this notion of the German raping and pillaging across Europe. 
and here he has this damsel in distress. This is a reference to the early King Kong movie, and the German is being portrayed that way. So rather than buying a liberty bond here, we need you to enlist and to go and fight in the war. So propaganda becomes a very important part of this. As I mentioned before, changing roles of women. All these millions of men going off to fight in the war would leave a lot of vacancies in these factories, and women would immediately fill those vacancies, and it would transform their lives and create a lot of independent women who really weren't so happy when the men came back and reclaimed those jobs and they were told to go back into the household again. So in the midst of this war, actually very much so in America, this is the beginning of the modern American feminist movement, the movement for getting women the vote, uh, the movement of uh, Susan B. Anthony and, uh, and Elizabeth uh, uh, Carrie Catman Chat and, and Alice Paul and these women who felt that their rights were just as important as anybody else's rights as men's rights and they exerted themselves even in wartime and often they did that through gaining independence in these factories. Okay, so eventually the war does come to an end and you, you've seen all the death and destruction, you've seen all the technology that's hurried, I'm sorry, that's hurled at, uh, at men and also at uh, whole populations and villages. But on November 11th, 1918, facing an internal revolution, Germany would finally decide that the fight was over. Um, they had shifted their forces from the Eastern Front to the Western Front and had almost tipped the scales in their favor, but they had not quite tipped the scales because in April of 1917 came the Americans. And the Americans arrived finally deciding they weren't gonna be isolationists anymore. They were gonna be a country that would actually help determine the outcome of this war, and they did. A million American troops actually determined the end of the war and made it impossible for Germany to win, for Austria, Germany to win. And they would not surrender, but an armistice, not surrender, an armistice would be, de would be decreed. In other words, there would be a cessation of fighting, but no immediate assumption that one side had won and the other side had lost. The war simply came to an end. And here, this is the American celebration uh, in uh, Times Square, near, I'm sorry, yeah, in Times Square. Um, I guess that's some sort of, uh, some sort of set up Statue of Liberty of some sort. Um, but the world celebrated the end of the war but the outcome of the war was still to be known because of the destructive nature of it. So a peace treaty is signed. It's called the Treaty of Versailles. It was developed in 1919 and signed in 1920. And it would be signed in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles. There's all of the delegates to the peace treaty. And here are the French and British delegates and in fact, the Germans and the Austrians would eventually be considered the entity, the nations that started the war, and they were blamed for the war, and they were forced to pay for the war, even though it's arguable that there was no start to this war. There was only a brief trigger and tensions that exploded into a real Donnybrook of a fist fight. But nevertheless, as the victors in this war, the British and the French, would force the Germans to give up territory. They would force them to pay monetary reparations, payments for the war in the amount of $33 billion. They would literally force Germany to its economic, political, and social knees. They would exclude them from the peace treaty process. 
and they would leave Germans very much embittered by what had happened. And this is in 1920. Nine years later, you would get the crash of 1929 and the world economic bubble would burst. Germany had just sort of gotten itself back on its feet again and then it would collapse into a world depression and out of that would emerge something even uglier. Okay, so I'm just gonna, before I talk about that last part, just to go back and again, look at the number of wounded and look at the number of dead and just try to imagine how incredibly altered European society was. There was no country, no culture, no village, no city, nowhere that was not affected by this. And any small continent that loses this many people and has to cope with this many wounded, destroyed human beings is a culture that's really going to have to go through some, some serious efforts to reconstruct itself. And if you think about where Europe is today, the European Union and how stable it is and all of that, it's even more remarkable considering that it wasn't just a recovery from World War I, it was recovery from another world war that would happen in 1941, that would, well, it would start in 1939 with Hitler's invasion of Poland. So going through all this destruction again and then rebuilding again, and you travel around Europe today and it's almost as if except if you're in a battlefield, you see no evidence of these two dis destructive world wars. It's as if everything that you look at is normal, and yet when you start digging under the surface and you start talking to people, that's when you find out how deeply impacted Europe was. Everybody in every country, in some way, shape, or form, was impacted by this. Okay. Now, out of the war came some costs, and I'll go through them very briefly. There were physical and financial costs to the war, as I've described. People were devastated by this. There was famine, there was hunger, there was destruction, there was death, there was maiming of human beings, there was wiping out of whole areas. It was deeply destructive, and it left a deep, deep scar on the psychology of Europe, and very much on its children, many of whom lost their fathers obviously. There would be a massive social and political outcome to this war because it would displace so many people who had been, uh, who had been turned into refugees and who simply couldn't live in the area that they had been living in because it had been destroyed, so they simply had to go somewhere else. So these are French refugees from the spring 1918 German offensive and they're fleeing uh, off to the west. Everybody was dislocated. That's the real theme here is dislocation and the anxiety that comes along with that. And then over the course of from 1929 to 1933 and then all the way to 1939, we would see the rise of extremist elements all throughout Europe, very much in Italy with Mussolini, but also at the same time in Germany we would see the rise of extremism. These would be extremist elements of uh, individuals who had been left embittered and anxious about this war, angry about its outcome, uh, unfairly blamed, maimed, wounded, so on and so forth. And uh, it would lead to the death and destruction that would be eventually World War II and everything that went along with that. And so this is actually a very remarkable photograph because within it are the seeds of destruction that the world 
had never seen before and will probably never see again. And they come with this man, Adolf Hitler, a private in World War I, twice wounded, sitting there staring out at us. This is the person who would eventually come up with the final solution, that the Jews were responsible for World War I as the financiers of Europe. They were the ones that had caused World War I because they wanted everyone to die and that they would be the dominant race. It's the basic argument put forth in his book called Mein Kampf, my book, my life, that this young man would end up becoming the evil dictator that we would eventually go to war with again and dominates us to a considerable degree. You know, the History Channel is not really the History Channel. It's the Hitler Channel. They uh, run so many videos about him. There's been more time spent studying him and how he ended up doing what he was doing practically than anybody else. That's Hitler. Okay. So here's some images of the war. And you might notice the thumb through effect here in using Keynote. These are just some of the young men who died. They went off just like those young men out of that classroom, all full of vim and vigor, God and country, hoping to come back as heroes, happy for the camaraderie of being out on the front. And most of them died or came back brutally maimed. Hospital scenes, scenes of destruction, the dead on the battlefield, women burying the dead, the lines of crosses indicating the dead, the dead left just to die and rot, deserters who were executed, bodies piled in large mass graves, barbed wire and a body just hanging on it dead, whole cities that were altered by the war itself, occupied by soldiers and then destroyed by those same soldiers, bridges destroyed, rivers destroyed, whole inner cities destroyed by the, by the destructive nature of this whole thing. Okay, this is a short documentary about a poet named Videl Sassoon, and this is going to bring this whole thing to an end. Okay. so many millions had died. It was because of this transformation that has occurred in the character of warfare. The armies on each side were just thrown into this gap where they were chewed up. It was a zone of absolute horror, but in rather limited area. Uh, and it was a, a war of horror for soldiers much more than it for civilians. At the beginning of the 20th century, the idea of the war poet was not an anti-war poet. The, the war poet was someone who was in the war, probably an officer who had been educated at Cambridge or Oxford, with these very refined sensibilities. These were not 20th century poets. 
up until the moment that they experience these bombardments and this this horrific mass slaughter so soon was a decorated soldier a man of, of legendary courage who's known as man jack because of his uh, uh, his bombing exploits. He used to go out um, at night uh, on patrol with a pocket full of hand grenades and throw them at the enemy and, and then come back again. But so soon times deliver a tremendous sort of shock. Does it matter losing your legs? For people will always be kind and you need not show that you mind when the others come in after hunting to gobble their muffins and eggs. Does it matter losing your sight? There's such splendid work for the blind, and people will always be kind as you sit on the terrace remembering and turning your face to the light. World War I, uh, particularly with the British poets, um, I think we see that they were brought up in a very romantic era. Uh, their concept of war was uh, built on the uh, 17 and 1800s, where uh, battles were fought one-on-one -on -one with dignity. And they found themselves in trenches, uh, confronted with modern technology, concertina, machine guns, uh, things that they had not expected. And the war was long and drawn out. Sassoon made this public protest. He wrote to his commanding officer saying, I'm a soldier, speaking for soldiers, and I must protest that the war on which I entered as a war of uh, defense has now become a war of aggression and conquest. I am making this statement as an act of willful defiance of military authority. I am a soldier. I have seen and endured the sufferings of the troops, and I can no longer be a party to prolong these sufferings for ends which I believe to be evil and unjust. I suppose it's not unthinkable that he could have been caught martial and shot for that. But he wasn't. He was, a, he was something of a hero because of his, he had the military cross, he had a medal, the public knew him. The government was severely embarrassed by this. Sassoon was whisked away to Edinburgh, a long way from London, and sent to a military hospital called Craig Lockhart, to the hospital for people suffering from shell shock. Sassoon was rather bored by uh, newcomers. He didn't really want to meet anybody else while he was at Craig Lockhart. He was ashamed of being there anyway. He felt he was a failure. He felt he'd been silenced by authority and he shouldn't have given in. So he wasn't terribly enthusiastic when Owen knocked on his door, but Owen, on the other hand, was immensely excited to meet a published poet. And they did eventually become close friends, very close friends, I think, and they found they had a great deal in common. Okay, so much would be written about the war, much poetry would be written, much prose, films would be made, theater would be created. As I said at the very beginning, it would lead to the so-called age of anxiety from 1920 to 1929, um, which ran concurrently with the Roaring Twenties that you guys are already familiar with especially in America, the flappers, jazz, uh, the great Gatsby and all of that. So at the same time that some people were celebrating uh, the end of the war and the newfound uh, productivity and, and consumer culture and all of that, there was still a whole segment of the population, both in America and in Europe, that were still suffering from the trauma of this war. And uh, so I think that that's um, something profound to think about. Um, more than the war itself, 
more than the destruction of war and the technicality of war, what happens after war? How are we going to deal with the aftermath of war? I think that the United States, and this is just my personal opinion, has a very long period of adjustment coming right now as this war in Iraq comes to an end. If you do any searches online to look for images of soldiers coming home from this Iraq war, what you're going to find are an astonishing number of people who've been maimed and who are in hospitals receiving prosthetics that are astonishing themselves in their technicality, the ability to have an arm replaced with a metal arm. And I think the other thing that Americans are really going to have to deal with is the fact that women have been maimed just as much as men in this war in Iraq. And that's very hard for the public to see. If you see um, somebody, a woman uh, moving around in public who's missing both of her legs and is walking on prosthetic legs, that's a jarring sight to deal with. I mean, we're used to men. We know that it happens to men in war. But women, that's a different story. In fact, the woman who was just named the Deputy Undersecretary for Veterans Affairs by President Obama, her name is Tammy Duckworth, is a double amputee from the Iraq War. Both of her legs are missing, and she has prosthetics, and she moves with a wheelchair. And now she's in charge of um, Veterans Affairs, along with our own uh, Hawaii's General Shinseki, who was appointed as the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs. So we have this period ahead of us in which we're going to have to deal with the war. And I wonder if we might have the opportunity to learn from what happened at the end of this war and apply it to what happens uh, as we move forward in time and deal with wars now and in the future. Okay, there you go.